Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this uh, important debate here this evening. Uh, my first sense, in fact, is that the LSE has um, gone minimalist in the sense that we usually have uh, fancy designs behind us of the LSE logos and lots of stewards around. So we don't <coughs> have those, and so we're very much uh, by ourselves. So uh, we're being minimalist uh, this evening. But I'm delighted to see so many of you uh, here. It is uh, a deceptively large theatre and uh, quite intimate, so we can see you just as easily as you can see us. Uh, the debate, like many others at the LSC, uh, addresses, of course, a very important topic. A topic, and the reason why we're here, is that the topic clearly divides opinion uh, very strongly. And there are obvious sensitivities uh, involved in this issue. But this is also a debate uh, that has been requested both by the school's Israeli society and the Palestine society. So we come together with a clear expressed will to engage in discussion. Now, a shared will to debate rests, of course, on a common commitment to mutual respect as we discuss and argue. And I'm sure, in fact, that we would all believe that mutual respect is what uh, the region actually needs more of. So in our debate this evening, I would like to ask everyone here to show toleration, to show respect, and to listen uh, to what is being said. As chair, I will rule out of order heckling or shouting. We are here in an academic institution to engage in serious debate. We want to listen to the views being put. Otherwise, there's no point in having the debate. So mutual respect means toleration, listening, and I repeat, no heckling or shouting. The format for this evening is that we're going to have a short speech for and a short speech against. Each of these speeches will be for 15 minutes each. After those two speeches, our speakers will reverse order and have a short five-minute rebuttal of each other's position, a response to what has just been said. After that, I will then open up to the audience I can see that I have two microphones in front of me, but uh, surely I'm not expected to come round you uh, like some kind of morning TV discussion program, inviting you to speak on Jeremy Kyle or whoever the American equivalent uh, is. Oh, in fact, we have uh, a steward, so timely, thank you. Uh, so we, we have uh, microphones here. The main point to emphasize is that we should be left with at least 45 minutes for a discussion. And for these purposes, uh, I will invite you to make short contributions or to ask questions. And then periodically, I will invite both of our speakers to respond to the comments and questions which have been put at various stages uh, during that uh, discussion. So if we respect each other's opinions, I look forward to a very worthwhile debate. To remind you then, the motion before us this evening is that this House believes in an academic boycott of Israel.
and to argue in favour of the motion will be Dr. John Colcraft from the Government Department here at the LSE. John studied at Cambridge, Harvard and Oxford and gained a doctorate with distinction in the modern history of the Middle East in 2001. He is currently a reader in the history and politics of empire and imperialism in the Department of Government at the LSE. Arguing against will be Professor Daniel Hockhauser, uh, who is Professor, who is the Kathleen Ferrier Professor of Medical Oncology at UCL. It's another university in, in the City of London. Uh, but, but welcome nevertheless. Uh, he is a consultant medical oncologist at UCL uh, LH specializing in the treatments of gastrointestinal cancer. Uh, but uh, I should emphasize that Daniel actually started uh, by studying social and political sciences at Cambridge here in the UK. So at least he's been partially right in his career choices. Thank you very uh, much. He's, he's made. So uh, we begin our debates. Uh, can I remind you that the debate, like all others at the LSC, uh, is being podcast and will be downloadable uh, from the LSE conferences and events uh, webpage uh, in a few days' time. Uh, so you can listen to the debates uh, again. But we look forward to uh, the debates, uh, serious and important debates. And I now invite John Calcraft to speak for 15 minutes, and I will be uh, assiduous in timekeeping. Uh, thank you, uh, Chair. Thank you for coming tonight, and thank you to the two societies for organising this event. Over the last six years, and originating in a call from the Palestinian civil society itself, an exciting new transnational movement has appeared on the global scene. This movement, attempting to help solve one of the most intractable and destabilising problems of our time, advocates BDS, Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions on the State of Israel. The academic boycott of Israeli institutions is an important aspect of this movement, one which I'm happy to speak in favour of tonight. I'll say what the academic boycott is, why it addresses the right target, why it has a strong rationale, is efficient, high impact and potentially effective. On the way, I aim to rebut those who say that boycotters are a hardcore group of anti-Semites, opposed to academic freedom and the advancement of science and targeting in counterproductive ways the very Israelis they should be supporting. Instead, boycotters are part of an exciting and talkative and open movement which has rapidly spread from Palestine to the UK, France, South Africa, to Canada, the United States, other parts of Europe and even Israel itself, enlisting thousands of academic supporters committed to social and economic justice and democracy on a global scale, and believing in the possibilities of non-violent transnational solidarity against occupation and racism when other tactics have failed miserably, and modeling itself on the highly successful BDS movement that helped bring down apartheid in South Africa in the 1990s. So what is the boycott? Boycott means the withdrawal of institutional cooperation by academics worldwide from Israeli academic institutions. 
It's not a boycott of individual Israelis, whether Jewish or Arab, overseas. It does not involve political tests. It means not attending or organizing or speaking at conferences, lectures, or seminars held at Israeli academic institutions, not participating in exchange programs, editorial boards of journals, examinations, workshops, or joint research projects, not applying for or accepting posts at such universities, and not engaging in fundraising initiatives jointly with such universities. In short, it means not doing business as usual with Israeli institutions until their ideological and material complicity in extensive violations of international law and human rights is terminated. That's the tactic. Does it aim at the right target? We say yes. Why? Because academic institutions in Israel are complicit materially and ideologically in occupation, violations of international law, and extensive human rights abuses. There's compelling evidence of this increasingly documented by the Israeli-based Alternative Information Center, by studies coming out of SOAS, by BRICUP, the British Committee for the Universities of Palestine, and others. Don't take my word for it. Listen to the president of Tel Aviv University. Here he's speaking. Quote, people are just not aware of how much Tel Aviv University contributes. I myself am awed by the magnitude and scientific creativity of the work being done behind the scenes at Tel Aviv University that enhances the country's military edge, unquote. Indeed, at Tel Aviv University and beyond, geophysicists refine tunnel detection techniques based on seismic waves for use in the occupied territories. Computer scientists design robots to replace soldiers. Organic chemists work on how to identify suspects through sweat residue. Zoologists test birds and dogs for military use. Experts in microelectronics develop smart dew for the covert surveillance of, quote, just about everything. Mechanical engineers work on improving the aerodynamics of surveillance drones, and their colleagues refine technology for long-distance video gathering. Again, here's Dr. Michael Gozin of Tel Aviv University. He's an expert in organic chemistry and explosives. Quote, the creation of new chemistries is extremely important for the technological superiority of our troops." Unquote. Military research and development in the service of the occupation is just one aspect of a pattern of institutional complicity. Other aspects of that pattern, which I don't have time to go into, are extensive institutionalized links with the army of occupation, special privileges in the form of accelerated degree programs given to IDF and security forces, training programs for army personnel, the hiring and honoring of those who advocate that it's acceptable to kill Palestinian civilians and violate international law, and discrimination on campus and the complete failure of Israeli academic institutions to take a corporate stance in favor of the rights of their Palestinian academic colleagues or against the occupation. So it's this ideological and material complicity, the habitual and routine support for occupation and violations of international law and human rights that makes those institutions the right target for the tactic of boycott. Is it the right tactic? First of all, it has a strong rationale. First, diplomacy has failed, both the Oslo process, both the EU, the United States, and the Arab states. Second, armed struggle, in many ways, appears to have failed. 
Third, letters, petitions and demonstrations don't seem to have had much impact either. Fourth, forms of activism that are not transnational, that only address individual nation-state governments, have not been that successful. And because there has been a near unanimous call from Palestinians themselves that we boycott their oppressors, this gives a strong rationale for the boycott. It means the time for a form of non-violent direct action with a long anti-colonial and anti-racist credentials from the origins of the idea of a boycott in Ireland in the 19th century through to its tremendous success in South Africa in the 1990s, the time for that tactic has come. It has a strong rationale. It's also extraordinarily efficient. You'll notice in terms of effort applied, uh, it's a list of knots. You simply don't have to cooperate with Israeli academia. It's an extremely efficient tactic, open to a very wide and diffuse constituency on the global stage. It's also very high impact. It's taken very seriously at the highest levels of government. Why? Because in some respects, the Israeli Academy is a little bit like the South African sporting establishment in that it plays a very important role in the Israeli national self-image. So it matters when people cease to do business as usual with it. Second, when Arabs and Muslims have boycotted Israel traditionally in the past, because Zionism has a stock of colonial stereotypes whereby they can dismiss what Arabs and Muslims do, it hasn't necessarily had such a productive effect. Whereas, when the world as a whole considers that it's time for a boycott, it's much harder to deploy those colonial stereotypes to dismiss people in the West and elsewhere who are considering a boycott. That's when Israel takes a bit more notice. So it has a strong rationale, it's efficient, it's high impact, and it also, it's effective. Why might it be effective? Because it expands the critical and cultural space for speaking truth to power, for criticizing abuses which have become routine and institutionalized. And what it will do, this is the effect, it will put pressure on universities to end their ideological and material complicity with occupation. So it will help win over a section of Israeli society to that position. And if you don't believe me, I'll give you an example of how this has actually happened. There was a training program for the Israeli General Security Service that was in Zefat College, a branch of Bar Ilan University. That organization, by the way, is the, the GSSS, is an organization notorious for using torture and abusing human rights throughout the occupied Palestine territories. Now, that program was intended to be moved to the more prestigious Hebrew University, but the plan was revoked. Activists had threatened to report the movement of that program to the Hebrew University to the nascent boycott campaign in the UK. That was in May 2006. And so what it did is either through embarrassment or through principle, it meant that that program, complicit in the occupation, was not to be placed in a high prestige Israeli institution. That's the impact that this tactic can have. In that regard, the academic boycott can play a small but quite significant role in the overall BDS campaign in bringing down the material and the apartheid material and ideological apparatus of the, of the Israeli state as it did in South Africa. So it's the right tactic. It has a strong rationale, a high efficiency, a capacity for diffusion, a high impact, and at least a reasonable chance of success. The first objection that often gets uh, 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 raised by the, the naysaying anti-boycotters 
They say you're guilty of double standards, you're guilty of singling out Israel, and really what lurks behind what you do is anti-Semitism. I think that's special pleading for Israel. In fact, Israel has singled itself out by occupation, by settlements, by its covert nuclear weapons program, by the denial of the right of return, by massacre, ethnic cleansing, dispossession, wall building, and so on. The standards of judgment are not those of anti-Semites. The standard of judgment are those of universal categories of international law and human rights that we can all understand, including the principle of national self-determination. And the reality is that no one single campaign can tackle all the world's abuses. Any boycott campaign, any attempt to change the world for the better, has to prove itself right for the occasion in terms of its target, its rationale, and its expectations of success. And I think this campaign can, can show that. The second main objection is that you boycotters, you're opposed to academic freedom and the advancement of science. And in fact, boycotters are more committed and more serious about academic freedom and the advancement of science than this highly selective charge maintains. Far from being against academic freedom, we want and aim to achieve academic freedom for all, not just for those enjoying national freedom white western privilege and socio-economic advantage in short we want to see academic freedom include the palestinians and the arabs whose educational institutions have been crushed by occupation and dispossession and who have called nearly unanimously for our professional solidarity second far from being against science we seek that everybody can be involved in the advancement of science not simply those who enjoy national freedoms. And we don't seek a science that's scarred by ethnocracy, impoverished by occupation, and distorted by its emphasis on the science of war. So to conclude, in short, the academic boycott and BDS is not the preserve of anti-Semites and hypocrites, but it's timely, it's progressive, it's exciting, it's based on shared values, aiming at the right target with a strong rationale and having real chances of success. And indeed, let me submit that where so many social movements in the contemporary world are based on religious, market, ethnic or nationalist fundamentalism of one kind or another, then a movement based on freedom and democracy speaking in the name of law and right that opens up exciting perspectives of transnational solidarity in dark times might be one that commands our attention and even our support. So surely, Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, this House should indeed at least consider supporting a boycott of Israeli academic institutions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for respecting the time. We now invite Professor Daniel Hockhauser to respond. Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks to Gabby and Zach, and uh, it's a great privilege to be at LSE. I regard the academic boycott as completely pernicious, immoral, and destructive. But before I go on and say why I think this is the case, I just want to say a few personal words about why I feel very strongly about this and why I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here tonight. 
I work as a, as a medical oncologist, as a physician at University College London, and the area with which I work is involved in the treatment of patients with cancer, uh, chemotherapy, in combination with antibodies that target specific uh, cancer cells, which benefits many of our patients, both here in the UK and worldwide. And the reason that we are carrying out these therapies is because of pioneering work that was carried out in the Weizmann Institute some 15 to 20 years ago by Professors Yossi Schlesinger and Yarden. So I personally know that a cessation of links and grants with Israel would, first of all, have an immediate and direct effect. It is not some abstract or abstruse uh, issue we're talking with here. We're talking about direct disadvantage in a whole range of not only biomedical conditions, including cancer, but also cardiovascular, gastrointestinal, but also in prostheses and computing and elsewhere. So that's my kind of prudential personal argument. The first issue I want to deal with is the issue that the academic boycott has nothing to do with individuals. We're boycotting Israeli academic institutions. It clearly and obviously to anyone who's involved in academia makes absolutely no sense to differentiate academics from institutions. Academics require institutions. There's no academic who can really um, significantly operate or do their work outside the context of the institution. The academic requires the libraries, the computing, the IT facilities, everything that is provided through the infrastructure of the institution. So it makes absolutely no sense to say, I'm not doing anything against the personal academics. No, I'm going to leave them alone. I don't care what they do. But the institution, I'm going to boycott. The two intermesh and are very much involved together. And I regard it as a completely fallacious attempt uh, to actually differentiate between the two. So what is it? What is special about Israeli institutions and Israeli universities? I mean, uh, leaving aside what we've just heard, I think we turn to the website of uh, Palestinian Campaign for Boycotting Israel. They say, as a general overriding rule, virtually all Israeli academic institutions, unless proven otherwise, are complicit in maintaining Israeli apartheid colonial rule, whether through their silence, involvement in justifying whitewashing, etc., etc. Nuance you don't get from these... Um, from these websites, I must say. So basically, the Israeli academia, academic institutions, are uniquely complicit in the violence and the immorality of the Israeli occupation, uh, and they fail to condemn government action, and they therefore must be ostracized and boycotted, because they have not done what they should do as academic institutions. We're in LSE today. What is the attitude of LSE towards any political event that's going on in the world? During the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq, what was LSE's attitude? I have no idea. I don't want to know, because it is not the job of institutions to have political views. I'm sure many people oppose government policies. Did LSE make a statement that they were opposed to the war? Of course not, and they should not, because it is fundamental that institutions are the infrastructure in which academics work. They are not discrete entities that have points of view. Well, if it's not that, maybe government financing, maybe that's what makes institutions in Israel have this uh, particular responsibility, but we know that's not true because in this country, at the moment at least, virtually all universities are in receipt of government finance, so that can't be the reason either. Defence spending, well, of 13 universities surveyed in nature, 12 received, and this is in the UK, 12 receive an average of two and a half million pounds a year for military and security related research uh, per, per annum in this country. 
The universities in the UK are intimately involved in military and industrial research, as are universities in Israel, for an obvious reason. If countries need defence, there's absolutely no problem with the government and uh, universities getting involved in that defence research, provided it is transparent and open. So we don't normally expect academic institutions to have political views, except in one case, Israel. Is Israel, are, are Israeli institutions particularly complicit in some way because they don't recruit academic minorities? After all, one hears that uh, uh, Palestinian and Arab citizens of Israel do not wish to deal with Israeli universities, but that cannot be the case because over 20% of the students in Haifa University, in Barilan University, and in the Hebrew University are, from, are Israeli Arabs. Could more be done to increase Arab faculty in Israel? Of course. Should there be more community colleges? Of course. Just as in this country, ethnic minority representation at the faculty level is severely lacking. Does that mean you boycott institutions? Of course not. But that leads to the second point. As I said, I think the whole issue of separation of institutions and academics is a completely fallacious argument. And then we're really at the nub of the argument because we're actually boycotting the individuals themselves. Boycotts and academic boycotts attack the fundamentals of scholarship and academic freedom. This is not some bourgeois illusion. This is the reality and the foundation of academic life. And Israeli academics who are being subject to boycott are discriminated against because they are Israeli, because of their nationality. The boycott is because they are Israelis. Although it is sometimes made the case that nationality is not important because an Israeli who comes to England, provided they pass certain loyalty factors such as Ilan Pape and others, they're not boycotted. But other Israelis are not treated in such a privileged way. They do have to pass tests of loyalty before they can be exempt from boycotts abroad. Who decides? Who decides on the complicity of the Israeli academic institutions? Where is this democratic process? Well, there are a number of certainly very interested and narrow factional uh, organizations that are doing this, but they're vague in what they mean by complicity and boycott. What do they actually mean? Well, the point is it's a fundamental principle of universities that political opinions of individuals are not relevant to academic employment. There is no academic who should have to provide, vouch their own political ideas as a condition of academic employment. That is a fundamental problem of freedom of expression. Anything that undermines this will destroy academic freedom and credibility. Now, I mentioned medical science before. Let's look at another discipline, another academic discipline, and see how academic scholarship will be affected by the boycott. I was very keen to see that the LSE has set up a Middle East Centre. On its website, in this new centre formed in October 2010, one reads, The Middle East Centre works to develop research and teaching on societies, economies, polities, international relations of the region, including Arab states, Iran, Israel, Turkey, Afghanistan and Pakistan. That is absolutely creditable and it is excellent that LSE is involved in this initiative. One of the aims of the LSE Middle East Centre is to strengthen relations between LSE and Middle Eastern University, which I absolutely applaud and I'm sure many here would. To my utter amazement, I discover that one of the people on the management group is none other than the person who is opposing me this evening, Dr. John Chalcraft. I find it rather incredible that he is on the board of an organisation that exists to strengthen relations between LSE and the Middle East, and yet he calls for a boycott of Israeli academic institutions. It is very difficult to see how LSE's Middle East Centre could have even the minimal amount of academic credibility if that were the case. 
We come then to the universality principle, which is crucial to academic freedom. The best-known statement of that principle is in the International Council of Science, which is a voice of science. Discrimination is forbidden among scientists on the basis of such factors as gender, as ethnic origin, religion, citizenship, language, political stance, gender, or age. This is the vital and universally applicable uh, uh, approach towards science and towards other, other fields of study. And the reason for it is, are we applying this boycott universally, or are we just applying it to Israel? Are we going to boycott United States universities because of Guantanamo Bay? Are we going to boycott United States universities because of the American invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq, which have resulted in significantly more civilian casualties than in the entire Middle East? Of course we're not. Who's going to boycott Harvard, Yale, Columbia? Nobody. And why not? Because A, it's futile and pointless, and B, because nobody believes that American universities are complicit in what American governments do. China, are we going to boycott them because of Tibet? Of course not. Turkey and the Kurds? Absolutely not. The United Kingdom for the, for the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan? Maybe we should be boycotting ourselves. No. But in the case of Israel, we single out Israel. Why do we single out Israel? And I think this is the nub of it, because to me, as I say, I, I find a lot of trouble, uh, even uh, tonight, understanding this boycott. We read, we know, of course, Israelis and Jews know a particular historical resonance of what goes on, of what boycotts actually mean. That does not mean that uh, boycotters are anti-Semites, but that boycott is got particular historical resonances. But if we read the PACB website and the BrickUp websites, we read uh, statements such as this. Israeli academic institutions in particular are part of the ideological and institutional scaffolding of the Zionist colonial project in Palestine and as such are deeply implicated in maintaining the structures of domination over the Palestinian people. These websites and the boycotters view the conflict in the Middle East not as a clash of two justices, as two nationalisms. They don't seek understanding. They don't seek peace or the way forward. They view the conflict as one-sided, blinkered, and in one-dimensional perspective. There is no standing with the other. There is no even attempt to understand any reality on the Israeli sides. The Israelis are seen as they are, the, the uh, begetters of original sin and absolutely unredeemable. In fact, amazingly, an argument often used against boycott, which I think is quite reasonable, is instead of boycotting, why don't we build bridges? Why don't we attempt interdisciplinarity? Why don't we have joint projects in the Middle East? And actually, interestingly, reading these websites, one sees there is nothing they oppose more than interdisciplinarity and collaboration. They oppose it. Why? Because it legitimizes and tries to justify the Zionist colonial regime. So the only way forward is not collaboration, not working together, not trying to make things better, but destruction and boycott. I believe that the boycott, as I said, is completely uh, pernicious, completely immoral, and completely destructive. I think that one day in the Middle East there will be peace. There certainly will be a peaceful solution that will involve having two-state solution, Israel and Palestine. These two countries will work together, and they will have to work together both academically and in many other ways. The boycott demonizes and ostracizes, it antagonizes, it polarizes, it increases hatred, and it reduces understanding. But in the future, there will be understanding, and it will not be because of the boycott campaign, it will be in spite of the boycott campaign. And I call on everyone to reject the terrible idea of an academic boycott.
Okay, thank you. Thank you also, Daniel, for keeping uh, well to time. John, was there anything there you'd like to pick up? Uh, <laughs> Five minutes, please. Just a couple of points. Um, see, it's interesting, because we have to think about this academic freedom argument, because uh, there's this idea that somehow it's the boycotters who are politicizing everything and that it's the boycotters who are creating polarization and the boycotters who are somehow causing politics to infiltrate the academy. And the thing is that actually if we think a bit more carefully about the academic freedom argument, what it turns out to be, because those of us involved in the boycott and those of us who support it have quite serious track records in defending academic freedom. And uh, the the, um, the, the, what the argument is, is that it's those Israeli universities themselves who have engaged ideologically and materially on a patterned basis in complicity with one of the longest running occupations of the 20th century and now the 21st, that brings politics into the academy. Who says that boycotters bring politics into the academy? Who, what, what kind of politics are we talking about anyway? We're talking about a non-violent voluntary movement of transnational solidarity that advances by persuasion and we're facing a military industrial complex, um, an enormous nuclear armed army and a systematic occupation and the siege, one of the largest open air prisons in the world, which is Gaza. So who's bringing politics into this, ladies and gentlemen? The, the boycott attempts to say, we reject the complicity of Israeli academic institutions with the occupation that their government imposes. And we seek that those universities will play a more proactive role in civil society in opposing what their government does. And so I, I, we have to be very a bit more thoughtful, I think, about the academic freedom argument. It's very important because there's, we, it, it's interesting because might, it might even be that we share the value of academic freedom and that we don't, there's a, a significant element that we do not want to politicize the academy in the way you also don't want to politicize the academy but neither do I in that sense. Of course we also understand because we know about the real world that universities do have political connections and that political decisions are taken and when you see that for example uh, a, that uh, someone called Asa Kasha, who's a professor of professional ethics and philosophy of practice, gets hired at Tel Aviv University. He's also a military advisor. When he advises that the IDF killing of Palestinian civilians, whose lives are said to be less important than Israeli soldiers, when he advises that that's the responsibility of Palestinian combatants, and then he's hired and honored and runs a program at Tel Aviv University, then this is one tiny example of a pattern of institutional complicity. And the thing is that it's, it's sort of disappointing that there's a total failure on the other side to engage with the very important distinction between an institution and an individual, because we hold opinions as individuals that are different to institutions, and we've been given a very good example of that by my membership on the board of the Middle East Centre at the LSE. And this is, this is okay, you know, especially in a liberal society. 
you know, we, we are allowed to hold opinions that are not necessarily held by the corporate institutions for whom we work. And if we can't have that space for freedom, for dissent, and if we can't seek to expand it, then we're really in trouble. And what's so peculiar about the, the sort of, um, the, the idea that uh, because the UK universities have been complicit with the occupation of Afghanistan and the US universities have been complicit with the occupation of Iraq, does, does my learned friend think that's a good thing or does he think it's a bad thing? Because, okay, if he thinks it's okay, then there's nothing further to debate. But if he thinks there's an issue there and we should think about the right tactics to consider whether we want our universities to be complicit in this way, then what tactics do we use? And, uh, and it, of course, in the case of boycotting Yale, it might not be a good tactic. I mean, my, as a learned friend said, it might be futile. But half my argument is about this is not a futile tactic in the case of Israeli academic institutions. It has to be the right tactic with the right rationale. Okay. And, and so, anyway, those are a couple of points to, to answer some of those. Okay. Uh, uh, Daniel. Well, thank you very much. I mean, I've, I've learned a few things this evening. One of them is that the Israelis use birds for military use because I know the vulture was recently arrested in Saudi Arabia, has fortunately been released. But going back to what was said by my colleague here, the issue is uh, why are we boycotting these Israeli universities? And he's constantly uh, putting together two different arguments all the time. One is that the universities should be boycotted because they are complicit in uh, ideological and material complicity, i.e. if the universities were not uh, involved in this ideological and material complicity, then they would not be boycotted. But on the other hand, he's saying boycott is actually a fundamental campaign tactic to destroy and undermine the, the, the existence of the State of Israel. Either one or the other. In my view, if you feel that the uh, uh, issue is it's ideological and material complicity of Israeli universities, you have to prove that in some way. The proofs, actually, incidentally, are rather weak. Asser Kasha is an extremely distinguished Israeli philosopher, and he was, in fact, asked to actually form an investigation and look at the ethics for soldiers and lecture to them. His long article about him in The New Republic I would recommend, and it's completely nothing whatsoever, and bears no relationship to the travesty we just heard about it. Far from him being complicit in it, his idea was to try and determine and make rules for soldiers to determine moral rules of engagement. However, the issue is, is that now we're also at the stage where the reason for the academic boycott is not only because it's justified, but it's efficient, i.e. it's very good. So we can now forget the morality issue because Yale is actually completely immune from things because it's not efficient against Yale, but we think we can get away with destroying academic freedom exchanges uh, and the rest of it with Israeli universities because there's something about the Israeli psyche that can't take academic boycotts. If it was another country, it would be sport, but Israel, not Jews, but Israel has kind of got this thing about academic boycotts. The truth is, there's no failure to engage in the, in the, in the anti-boycott campaign. The failure to engage is in the pro-boycott campaign. Instead of engaging in dialogue, instead of bridge-building collaboration, they seek to destroy collaboration. They destroy interdisciplinarity. We are here tonight because the Israel and Palestine societies have actually together set up a meeting. Of course, if there was boycotting the Israel society, we wouldn't have such a meeting tonight. It's obvious for anyone in academia that we need to work together and not apart. 
Finally, the, so there were a great litany of insults against Israel, and we're here tonight to discuss the academic boycott rather than the fact that you boycott states because they're nuclear armed, under which by a basis I suppose we should start boycotting France and, and uh, every other... No I, I, half of these are just total red herrings in relation to why you boycott countries. What is the relationship of nuclear weapons and defence research, which occurs in every single Western country? So we have to then ask, what is it about Israeli academic issues? And I answer again, if you look at Israeli academic institutions. They are strong beacons of freedom. Their record is extremely good, not with everyone. I'm sure they have a few you know, rough edges there, no question about it. But the fact is that in general, the community in Israel is a beacon of freedom of expression. And that's a merely, uh, the pointing out that Israelis support the boycott merely just indicates and helps us understand that there is complete freedom within there. As to freedom of expression for Palestinians, that is vital and crucial. It is vital and crucial that we reach a political settlement. We have not exhausted everything, so we have to do the boycott. It's an, completely, an amazing view of international relations that says wars failed, diplomacies failed, politics have failed, but we're going to sort out the entire Middle East problem by boycotting Israeli academic institutions. I mean, there is an element of bathos in that that I find quite incredible. So the point about it is, I regard One it as... Minute, John. I, I very much disagree with this. I think the idea of not working together is fundamentally wrong, and I, and I again, cannot uh, see how it is uh, politicising the academy, as was put, to be against a boycott. It is exactly the reverse of that. I must say, incidentally, on behalf of the LSE, I'm reminded of the British TV comedy program, Yes Minister. You'll remember in this Yes Minister program, uh, Sir Humphrey, the senior civil servant in the ministry, explained to the rather uh, inept politician that the reason why Britain has uh, nuclear weapons is because of France. So the idea that we should uh, boycott France, I must say, let's leave that open to another debate. But I must say, uh, let's not rule it out entirely uh, on, on this basis. Okay, so we now have, um, in fact, 30 minutes for uh, contributions. Do we have a microphone upstairs? Everyone upstairs wants to ask a question. You're a little bit slow here. Uh, do we have a, a question? Uh, do we have a microphone upstairs? Okay, so if you wait, can the gentleman uh, here, uh, the, slightly further back, could you just say who you are, please? And if it's a contribution, please keep it short. Uh, my name's Toby Glynn. I'm an LSE uh, alumni. Uh, I, I ask uh, the, the, the gentleman proposing the boycott uh, how he uh, asserts that he's applying a universal principle by singling out Israel for the boycott. Um, by singling out I Israel, that you're not applying a universal principle, why not boycott uh, Sri Lankan universities, Chinese universities, or even Palestinian universities, given that uh, recent reports of the high incidence of torture in Palestinian prisons controlled by the Palestinian Authority. What rationale can there be for singling out Israel? I've thought of many alternatives, and the only coherent explanation is anti-Semitism. Okay. 
Thank you. We do now have a microphone upstairs. Could we take the gentleman on the, near the aisle here, please? I'm going to take several contributions and then invite uh, the panel to respond. Could you just identify who you are, please? Uh, yes, yeah, Jonathan Hoffman. I did my master's degree here 35 years ago. <coughs> um, 35 years ago, um, the NSE believed in facts, and we get from the proposer um, the nonsensical statement that Asha Kasha said that Palestinian lives are less important than Israeli soldiers' lives, which is absolute nonsense. Um, let's step back a bit from the academic boycott and look at Israel's case. Um, Richard Kemp, who was in charge of British forces in Afghanistan, said the Israeli army, the IDF, is the most moral army in the world. I put it to the proponent, the proposer of the motion, if you, John Carcroft, had your house under siege for eight years with rockets, would you expect your government to do something? Yes or no? Please answer. That is what happened in Israel. In Stirot, the people were under siege from rockets, from Qassam rockets, for eight years, 6,000 rockets, before Israel did anything. And I'll put another point to you before I finish. Look at the statistics. Israel did everything possible to save civilian life in Gaza. 25% of the population of Gaza is male between the age of 16 and 65. Keep that number in your head. 25% between 16 and 65. Of the casualties, 75% of the casualties were males between 16 and 65. Compare those two numbers. 25% of the population, 75% of the casualties. Who are the, who are the Hamas uh, fighters, they are predominantly males between the age of 16 and 65. That shows you okay. how careful Israel was. The most moral army in the world. There is okay. no reason to boycott Israel. Israel has done nothing illegal and there is no reason to boycott okay. Israeli Thanks academics or Israeli anything. Okay. Thanks very much. Uh, we've had two... Um, we've had two... Please. We've had two contributions arguing against the uh, motion. Do we have someone arguing in favour of the motion? Uh, could we take the gentleman uh, there, please? Hi, I'm, uh, I just have a, actually a question. So um, uh, I'm a doctoral student here, Sam Rabdelnour. Uh, this is open to both uh, gentlemen, uh, and thank you both for your positions. I'm wondering, what was the Israeli academic response to the bombing of schools and Palestinian universities uh, in Gaza during um, uh, what many would call a massacre in Gaza? Um, okay, recently. thank you. Thank you. Uh, the gentleman at the right at the back, please, if uh, better that way. Um, Mike Cushman, I'm a member of staff at LSE. I think we have to describe the context for the boycott call. And of course, it's not just an academic boycott. The academic boycott is a part of a general call for cultural, sporting, um, and economic boycott. So it's not that the universities are being singled out. But the boycott call is about the tyranny of occupation. And it's about a response to the underreported dramatic shift in Palestinian resistance inside the occupied territories from violent to nonviolent action. Non mass nonviolent action that is seldom reported in the United Kingdom and worldwide. When there was mass nonviolent action in the southern states of the United States in the 1960s for civil rights, 
It was on every newspaper and every television broadcast what happened in Birmingham, in Montgomery, and so on. When peaceful demonstrators are murdered in Berlin, in Nilin, in Silwan, in Sheikh Jarrah, and across the occupied territories, it is not reported in this country. The fact that someone was killed by Israeli tear gas only a week ago during a non-violent demonstration in Berlin has not been reported. And barely reported, sorry, barely reported. Um, and what we have to say is, what is civil society's reaction to this worldwide? And our reaction to nonviolent civil mass action in Palestine has to be nonviolent mass civil action across the world. Now, do I like academic boycotts? No, I don't. I would rather not have them. But everything else has failed. No one who is opposing the boycott is giving us any sensible way of producing peace and justice and rights for the Palestinians who have been suffering occupation for 40 years and more, who are daily seeing their houses demolished, okay. daily seeing people involved in nonviolent action, beaten okay. up, arrested and murdered. So, as John was arguing, academic boycott is a moderate, modest, and appropriate response. It's the way that we can exercise our civil duty. Okay, thanks very um, much. Just one last point. No, no, one, one last point? One sentence. Okay. You're asked why Israel and not China, because there has been a call from the Palestinians, as there was from the South Africans, for boycott. If okay. there were a call from within China, Okay. I would, I would support that That's a, that's, okay. But there has not been such a call. Okay. You made the point. Thanks. Uh, could we take the gentleman on the front row, please? It's an opportunity for our helpers to have lots of exercise. Um, I have a... I'm a former LSE student. I have a question to the UCL professor. Um, would you be against a boycott of um, uh, an academic boycott of South African universities and why? Today? Yeah, no, in the, sorry, yeah, in apartheid South Africa, obviously. Okay. Otherwise the question doesn't make sense. Well, my, um, the yeah, thought crossed my mind. Um, my name is uh, Shimri. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I'm Israeli. Okay, thanks. And now, if you could go all the way around, please, to the gentleman on the, this, the third person on, from the aisle, uh, you say yes. And then I'm going to invite uh, John and Daniel to give some initial responses briefly. Uh, just here, please. Uh, hi, my name is Talha Ghanem. I'm a student at the LSE. Um, I wanted to ask a question to our friend uh, from UCL. Um, isn't there an issue of consistency here when the Israeli government itself is boycotting an entire peninsula and area in terms of Gaza and all the universities that are actually in Gaza and all the students that are in Gaza and we've actually got people accusing the majority of males between a certain age of being Hamas and actually boycotting them. That when, that when we actually have a boycott imposed by the state and by the country which we're describing, you oppose a, a boycott that of Israel itself, which we're actually trying to do here. Isn't there an issue of consistency here? Okay, thanks. Uh, 
At this stage, should I uh, let me invite John to go first okay. with a two-minute uh, reply to the various points that's been raised okay, so far. Just, I should reply on this Asa Kasha thing because there's obviously a lot of confusion out there. But uh, I'm getting this information from an article by Margolid and Walzer that was published under the title Civilians and Combatants in the New York Review of Books on the 14th of May 2009, where they clearly show how Asa Kasha's arguments advise that the IDF killing of Palestinian civilians is the responsibility of the Palestinian combatants and not the responsibility of the IDF, which, and it's made explicit, that the lives of Israeli soldiers are worth more than the lives of Palestinian civilians. And it's the upturning of about 150 years of uh, standard jurisprudence and philosophy on the rules of war. And in fact, going back more like 1,700 years, if you include other non-Western traditions of the rules of war. So when you value the life of, your, of the occupying soldier more than that of the Palestinian civilian, and you're hired, honored, and promoted in an Israeli academic university, then we submit, maybe we should pause and think What's this academic freedom being used for? What other kinds of academic freedom can we try and promote? It's interesting because uh, we heard that the IDF is the most moral army in the world. I mean, the IDF killed more Lebanese in three months in 1982, about 17,000, the great majority of them civilians, than the Palestinians have killed of Israelis since 1967. They did it in three months, but they are the most moral army in the world. And the thing about this point is it's worth thinking about because one of the things that singles out Israel, I don't single out Israel, Israel singles out itself. And one of the ways it singles itself out is to trumpet its atrocities as if they were elements of its own righteousness. Okay. And that's, uh, you know. Okay. Daniel. And, and, just, and just on the... On the we one, were sentence, asked, one sentence. I was asked about the response to the bombing of the Islamic University of Gaza in January 2009. It's interesting. There were all sorts of statements from university heads in Israel and the United States condemning the academic boycott. Not a single statement condemning the destruction of a Palestinian academic institution. And that applies in Britain, it applies in the US, and it applies in Israel. Well, you know, we want to talk about that. That's why we're here. It's a dialogue, and that's why this debate is happening. Okay, uh, thanks. Daniel? So, um, so i just make a few points. The gentleman at the back who gave a, a sort of rather long speech, uh, I would just like to say that the end of his speech, I thought, revealed actually the essential reason for why uh, Israel is singled out, which he says that there's no one in China complaining about the uh, occupation and Tibet, and that's exactly the point about it. You wouldn't get anywhere if you tried to complain about the Chinese occupation of Tibet, and the, there's no issue whatsoever about uh, making a, uh, an academic boycott of China or any other country, only Israel. I don't really want to get involved in the sort of nitty-gritty of, you know, one atrocity that Israel has done. I'll just make a few points uh, about it. Uh, the bombing of the university in Gaza, which was pointed out, uh, if it, there was a war going on then, it is very clear that actually there were military uh, facilities that were intermingled with between the combatants and the civilians, and that is the reason why Kasha made that remark, but uh, we don't need to discuss that further. Of course, it, bombing uh, that results in innocent civilian life is absolutely a terrible thing. 
happening and there was a war going on and I don't know of any war in, the his in history that didn't result in civilians dying. Why didn't Israeli universities cry out against it? Why didn't LSC cry out against the killing of civilians in Afghanistan and Iraq? They have not done so. I have never seen a statement by LSC. Universities don't make statements about political events. They just don't do that. Individuals do. Okay. Excuse Sorry. me, I don't see no, no. why you should interrupt no, 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 me. And it's completely, no, no, it's no, completely no. out of order for you to interrupt me. Uh, basically, um, in fact, actually, the other, the other issue about it is, is the, 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 the boycott would prevent us from even having such discussions with Israeli colleagues and so forth. We would not have any, we would not, under the terms of the boycott, Israeli academics could not be invited to forums abroad where debates took place simply because the boycott calls for no joint meetings with Israeli academics. Okay. Um, Thanks. So now back to you. Uh, let's. Uh, the lady down here, please. Hi, um, my name is Deborah Blostin. I'm a student at UCL. Um, I feel it's important to bring a second voice to add to the voice that was brought from the back about the um, interests, uh, the voice of Palestinian parties on um, the issue of boycotts. And the voice I want to bring is the voice of the head of UNRWA, the UN Release Agency in Gaza, John King, someone who I don't think it can be denied spends their days and nights living. Um, and fighting for the rights of Palestinians in Gaza. Um, he came to Limud conference um, this December in Warwick and he spoke out in front of a Jewish audience against the blockade of Gaza. He also spoke out against what he called collective punishment of Gazan civilians. He also spoke out against BDS. He said that it's alienating and it's counterproductive, that it speaks in negative and not positive terms that there are enough negatives in this conflict and we should be thinking in the positive. I'd like to ask the proposition speaker to reflect on this. Okay, thank you. Uh, about three rows back in the middle could be, yeah. Uh, hi, my name is Taib. I'm an economics student here, and uh, this is directed towards uh, our friend from UCL. Um, the question you're asking a lot is, why is Israel being singled out? And I'd say the answer to that is because Israel is, we feel that Israel um, is kind of being singled out in the terms of its crimes are overlooked, as in there's sanctions on North Korea, there's sanctions on Iran, and no doubt those sanctions are harming people that are not complicit in any political activity of any sort and who don't deserve to be sanctioned. And the reason why there's a, a movement for boycott against Israel is because there are no sanctions against Israel, even though it's broken more UN resolutions than any other country in the world. And we feel, and most of the public feel as a country, that we need to take this action ourselves. And no doubt, a boycott will harm academics that are not involved in politics at all. But Okay. You know, the Israeli state is harming Palestinians who aren't involved in politics or any kind of violence. So okay, it's almost. You. So the reason there is a boycott is just to put pressure on uh, the state of Israel to stop this violence and this massacre of the Palestinian people. Okay, thank you. Uh, I can't see the microphone downstairs. Yes, uh, the gentleman about five rows back at the on the aisle, please. Hi there. I don't know how many people in the room are aware of an organization called Save a Child's Heart. It's an Israel-based humanitarian organization that helps children throughout the world regardless of their uh, their national origin. I, I just like to know if BDS 
includes uh, boycotts of Israel-based humanitarian organizations, especially humanitarian organizations uh, that are designed to help people in uh, the Palestinian territories or in other parts of the Middle East. Uh, and if, if such humanitarian organizations especially had partnerships with academic institutions, uh, if they would be included and targeted as part of this campaign. Thank you very much. And then the gentleman immediately behind you. Hi, um, I, I had a question for the UCL um, professor. I, I was wondering why you had refused or failed to answer the question from uh, the Israeli student in the back about um, whether you would consider a boycott or divestment or sanctions against apartheid South Africa, which was successfully defeated apartheid South Africa, if you believe that's singling out. Okay, thank you. And then, I'm sorry, the gentleman uh, four rows back uh, in the middle here, please. Perhaps someone would simply pass it over for you. Uh, I'm Jonathan Rosenhead. I'm a retired professor of this institution. Um, I'd like to address the question of singling out. There's been quite a lot about that. Um, Nelson Mandela, talking about boycott, uh, pointed out that it was a tactic. You only apply it where other means have failed and where you think there's a chance of getting some effect. That's why we, nobody in our right minds would think of boycotting China or boycotting Harvard. But Israel is an intermediate case where there is a possibility that this sort of uh, boycott will have an influence and it will certainly influence world opinion. And there's a lot more has been done by the boycott campaign to get people aware of what Israel is doing. So it has that effect in any case. Um, there's some. People said, well, the United, well, in fact, Professor Hochhauser said, the uh, United Kingdom uh, universities are involved with military. Well, it's not the same. Israel is a small country with, the, I think, the fourth largest army in the world. It has the, a massive arms export trade. The, the role of armaments in Israel and in the Israel academia is phenomenal. So that, in fact, the, uh, the, the trivial, relatively trivial sums that our universities get into, which I think our dubious need to be explored. We have ethics committees for that, but I don't see any ethics committees stopping Israel from doing that. Okay. I would just like to um, end sentence. by saying um, that you need to understand the difference, which you clearly haven't, I'm afraid, between the individual and institutional boy, uh, boycott. I have been supporting the boycott for the last six years. This last year, I invited, invited an Israeli to give a seminar here because it is not against individuals. He's working in my field. I'm glad to discuss with him. What I'm concerned about is not to be in that way involved with universities over there. Thank you. Thank you. Gentlemen, Could you pass the microphone for <clears throat> My name is Richard Millett. Um, question to John. When you um, talk of a call from Palestinian society um, for this boycott, on what basis? What, has there been a referendum? What organizations are you talking about? I've seen a long list of uh, uh, supposed organizations. I've never heard of, uh, I haven't heard of many of them. So where, what is this call? Who are these people? Okay. Uh, gentleman on the um, aisle here, uh, three rows back, please. My name is Michael. I'm a graduate of the Bester College of the University of London, University College. My question is for the uh, proposer of this motion. Um, you talked about um, Israeli military uh, involved in, within the universities. And it's certainly true that the Israeli military does have research within the universities. But that military research, as mentioned by somebody before, is used also in export. Part of the export is to the British Army, 
and to the American army, sure. and that technology is utilized for the benefit of the British armed forces and for the American armed forces in the very just wars that they are fighting in currently in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And I just wondered whether you would sacrifice the lives, the great lives of British soldiers or American soldiers for your boycott action, which I just find totally immoral, anti-Western, anti-British, anti-American, okay. and quite frankly, anti-Israeli. Okay. Uh, I think we have time for two more. Uh, the gentleman here, please. Uh, I'm sorry, the lady here. I'm, I apologize. <laughs> um, first of all, um, I just quickly wanted to say that I know it's been discussed a lot, the singling out thing. Um, I think that your argument is a little bit weak because when you say, what about, what about so-and-so, this country, that country, as has already been said, um, there are reasons in terms of size and, and impact. Um, and so either you're trying to imply um, that you know, we're anti-Semitic for wanting to boycott Israel, which I thank you for saying, you know, you're, for saying you're not trying to say, um, or you're actually saying, yes, we should be rolling out to other countries um, abusing human rights, which perhaps we should have done, but as has been said already, they're much bigger and harder to affect in that way. And I'd like to ask a question um, to the UCL professor. Um, I'm yet to meet somebody who fights for Palestinian rights, for you know, a just, peaceful solution to the Middle East, who um, opposes boycott, which is, a, as has been said, peaceful and can be effective method. So really, um, I want to hear some uh, suggestions, other than returning to talks which have failed for 40 years, from people who oppose this boycott. What else can we do? Okay, thanks. Uh, finally, the lady uh, about four rows in from the back, right in the middle. You'll have to go all the way round to the back, I'm afraid, and then perhaps just pass it along. This will have to be the last contribution, and I'm going to invite our two speakers to respond uh, in two minutes each. I just want to say, Please. I'm a retired person old enough to remember quite a lot about the anti-apartheid campaign. And there is no evidence that boycotting the universities in South Africa had any impact at all. There's no evidence for the efficacy of an academic boycott, but I think we can all think of harms that could come from it. Academics shouldn't inflate their own importance. They shouldn't go in for gesture politics. They should be thinking much more about building bridges, about helping people in positive and constructive ways. Um, it, okay. It's no good. If wishes were horses, well, we'd all be winners. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. I must say, the LSE feels slightly uncomfortable with the denial of inflating academic egos. <laughs> uh, but let's move on. Uh, Daniel, do you want to have two minutes and then uh, John, two okay. minutes to I respond? I mean, in relation to the South African analogy, um, uh, the comment was it was efficacious and has just been made. Certainly, uh, I do believe that in, uh, in particularly tyrannical and genocidal regimes, there is, an, uh, there is certainly can be an argument for boycott. The idea that Israel should be boycotted because it's 40 years and there's no peace settlement is, well, why was 40 years suddenly dragged out of anywhere? Why not 20 or 60? It's completely an arbitrary figure. The point about it is it's the, the, the solution to the Middle East will be through a political settlement, not because a few academics are boycotting Israel. I mean, I do think it's a gesture-type politics. It's interesting that a 
an academic, a professor from the LSE, can talk about it as being a tactic. For him, the fundamentals of academic freedom, and I have to say I am still quite shocked at what my uh, colleague said here, that he can be on an organization that calls for, for, for a collaboration with uh, the, the Middle East, and yet he calls for a boycott. I mean, I don't know how he got that argument going. But I basically, I cannot understand how you can regard such a serious issue as a boycott, which attacks the fundamentals of universal freedoms. Uh, I don't understand how that can be just called a tactic which is efficient for Israel, but which is inefficient for America. So we won't use it on America because it won't work, but it's efficient for Israel. As I said, the South African regime and the apartheid regime, in my view, has no analogy here. There are 20% of students in, in Israeli universities are from Arab backgrounds, there are many academics. Coming here tonight, you wouldn't realize the fact that the, uh, the ex-president of Israel, who was actually found guilty of rape two weeks ago, was in fact in, a court, in front of a court of an Arab citizen of Israel. What's noteworthy about it is it's not noteworthy. It is just accepted. That's what it is. So calling Israel an apartheid country is, again, part of the litany of insults and a one-dimensional way of, of looking at the Middle East, and I don't propose to go into that. I, I just think that an academic freedom is paramount. Dialogue is paramount. Building bridges is paramount. The, the issue about South Africa is completely not relevant to okay. this. No, no, thank you, thank you. I did answer. I absolutely answered. I said, yes, I do believe in, uh, if every, in South Africa was a completely different situation. The universities were complicit in apartheid. They did not, they did not admit black students. They were implicit in, in the absolute solution of apartheid. In okay. Israel, I do not believe there's an apartheid regime. Okay, um, that's fine. Thank you. Okay, John. Okay, so... Um, Two minutes. I think we just heard the final contradiction that exposes the bankruptcy special pleading and naysaying of the anti-boycott campaign, who I think are so incapable of addressing the arguments because they really know that this tactic can get people excited and achieve something. I mean, we just heard that I was infringing the universal principle of academic freedom by seeking a boycott, whereas this gentleman says he does support a boycott of South Africa in the 1990s. So, you know, this kind of... We just heard from the lady on the floor. Really? We just heard from the lady on the floor that it's no good if horses were wishes, if wishes have horses or something. I mean, we can't, we can, we, we're not allowed to have wishful thinking by that argument. But by this gentleman's argument, we're not allowed to think of effectivity or efficiency or practicality either. So where do you stand, you anti-boycotters? Because your argument is full of contradictions. You're naysaying in the face of a campaign that actually does have some effect. Why, why do you assert that we're not building bridges? Where do you get that from? Is the only bridge, is the only bridge you build to uh, the Israeli academic institutions? What about Palestinian academia? Why can't you th imagine that there's a whole population under occupation whose educational organizations have been crushed and we are trying to build bridges? We believe in freedom for everybody and science for everybody, not this selective, uh, you know, privileged idea of we believe in cooperation. This is a tactic which I have tried to outline how it might have some efficacy in this specific case. It's not that we're singling out Israel. Israel has singled out itself, seconds. ladies and gentlemen. 
Who's calling for the boycott? Well, it's um, uh, the main organisation is called PACB, the Palestinian Academic and Cultural Boycott Initiative, and there's about 170 civil society organisations that are behind them, neighbourhood organisations, unions, teachers' organisations, and so on and so forth. Yes, Israel exports a lot of weapons. As Naomi Klein puts it, they're field-tested on the Palestinians who okay. are a captive civilian population amounting to four and something million. Yes, they export technology. Okay, that's what fine. I find so negative about the Okay, that's fine. Thanks, thanks, John. They, Thank, they, thanks, John. Thank you. Okay. okay. I suspect we have not resolved this uh, issue. <laughs> Uh, but the emotion before you, ladies and gentlemen, was, quote, this house believes in an academic boycott of Israel. You are not a scientific sample, but it would be interesting if you could now show, by raising your hand, if you support the motion, this house believes in an academic boycott of Israel. Thank you. Gosh, this is going to be difficult to judge. And uh, if you could now, if you could put your hands down, please. If you could now indicate uh, that you are against the boycott of Israel. Oh, I think that is, yes, okay. Uh, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I won't attempt to, uh, I won't attempt to estimate the numbers, but uh, certainly from my, where I was set, it looked as if the, uh, the opponents of the motion uh, were more numerous in this particular hall. Okay. Thank you. Okay. All that remains for me to do uh, now is to give uh, two thank yous. Uh, I think we've had uh, two very good contributions from the uh, stage here giving the arguments for and against, so I'd like uh, to thank John Coldraft and Daniel Hochhauser. Thank you. And finally, I'd like to thank the audience for uh, a very good debate and for the behaviour of the audience. Thank you very much indeed.